The Constellation, Episode 18, Aeolian. In Birmingham, Hamid sends Suflana a message. You checked out that file? Yeah, what do you think? Think he's the one. The one what? The one who knew. The one responsible. All the fucking UK government responsible. Yeah, but he's not even politician, right? Businessman. Making money from death of our brothers and sisters. So, you think we go for him? Yes. I don't know. The others say always, cause as much trouble as possible. Hit everything. Electric, gas, public transport, events. Kind of random. Fahim, he's into precision. This feels more like assassination. We are the fucking assassins, right? Yeah, but still something ain't right. You don't trust Fahim? Who knows who the fuck Fahim is? Seems like he knows too much. He's with us, I know. Not a copper, I'm sure. Okay. I'm gonna do it. When? Got to get all the stuff right. You in? I can help, okay. Still not sure about doing it though. Okay bro, no pressure. But help me out, yeah? Yeah. Make a plan. Chat tomorrow. Fatima is a bit worried if what they're doing is strictly legal. She's agreed with her contacts in counter-terrorism to install trackers on the phones of all the people flagged up by her algorithm. It's just for testing purposes. If they had to charge someone, it would get thrown out of court. And using software from Mossad isn't exactly, well, 
kosher, she thinks. Luckily, they all had WhatsApp installed. They sent them a video, seemingly from someone they knew, but when they clicked on it, and they all had done, it also installed a hidden tracking app. So now Fatima can see where everyone is, as long as they keep the location on their phone turned on. Spread around, from Sheffield to Birmingham, The Hague, Brussels and Barcelona. The algorithm has been predicting something, but it isn't anything she can see yet. There is no pattern. All the actors, the agents, are going about their business as usual. It's like watching a computer game, a simulation. She has to keep reminding herself that these are real people with real lives, perhaps totally innocent, but perhaps, just perhaps, they're terrorists. If Pretty Patel was still in charge, she thinks, she would have had them all arrested on the spot. Good job that, well, Fatima thinks that it was a kind of poetic justice that the Home Secretary had been washed off the deck of a Navy patrol ship by that freak wave. They'd never found the body. Meanwhile, Gus, oblivious of the fact that he's now a dot in Fatima's map, is putting the finishing touches to his algorithm. Carl calls it an algorithm, but that's too rational, he thinks. It's really just a stupid machine, cobbled together from a module that hacks into emails, another that passes the language, a poetry generator working in haiku mode, that was Carl's idea, and a Twitter bot. Hopefully, he thinks, Mary will have her trolls in place to start spreading it when he presses go in a couple of weeks' time. Mary, though, over in The Hague, has other things on her mind. Come on, Tim, we'll be late, she shouts, handing Yannicka a rolled-up banner. Tim is back home for the weekend, and like every student, when at home he regresses into an early teen version of himself, staying up and getting up late, and leaving random piles of stuff around the house. Coming already, he shouts. As they walk through the centre of town towards the Marleveld to the demonstration, Mary says, You know, I still can't believe that this is happening. It's something for Belarus or Poland. But in Holland? In the Netherlands? I did say, after the elections, Let's get out of here, says Janneke. But you wanted to stay. Where would we move to, though? England? Poundland, as Gus calls it, says Tim. Nah, bunch of losers. How about Ecotopia? Carl was there, but he said we'd be bored stupid, having nothing to protest about. Mary remembers coming to Holland in the 1980s and being impressed with the progressive social politics compared to Thatcher's Britain. Of course, some of it was just symbolic, the coffee shops, for instance, but still, it felt like the promised land. When she'd actually moved here, it was already different. 
very individualist and neoliberal driven. But still, there'd been this feeling of tolerance, particularly in the cities. But now? What the actual fuck? How is it possible that a crazy right-wing Christian coalition took over? But really, she knows how it happened. They have enough social policies to keep slightly more than half the people happy. Voters everywhere have moved more and more to the left over the last 20 years. They just don't vote for left-wing parties. And this, this is the result, she thinks. Wilders as Premier against his own wishes. Baudet and the SGP as coalition partners. Funded by right-wing fundamentalist Christians, basically it's an anti-Islam, anti-EU ticket. They don't agree on much else. Except for being pro-family, of course. And that's why Mary, Janneke and Tim are on their way to the rally. It's the third day of a women's general strike. The government has announced the intention to ban all abortion, except in the case of rape. Strangely, it had never been decriminalised back in the 80s, which made it easy to overturn. But really it's just another symptom, she thinks. They've also taken the Netherlands out of the Paris Agreement, started attacking the judicial system, handed piles of cash over to Shell and Schiphol, and called a Nexit referendum for fuck's sake, just when Mary has at last got hold of a Dutch passport. In a way, it's an echo of Trump's US or Kaczynski's Poland, polarising, splitting the country in two to the point of deadlock. It's getting dangerous, thinks Mary. They can hear speeches echoing in the distance now. Mary feels something rising within her, a kind of power and excitement she hasn't felt for ages. She spends her life organising things for activists, but it's not often she's on the streets doing it for herself. Hey Tim, she says, remember the Extinction Rebellion book? Huh? Non-violence? Don't hit anyone with your banner. Don't even look as if you might do it. Mum, don't you think sometimes it's just time to fight back? Of course, says Mary, but it's the last resort. Right now, we don't want to give them any excuse. You know they might declare a state of emergency. Back in Sheffield, in 1986, it was time for the students' half-yearly presentation, and Gus's teachers were worried. They hadn't seen him for weeks, and the work was due in that morning. The only thing is, said Dorian, I got this in my pigeonhole. It looks like a Gus thing. He unfolded a photocopy with a drawing of some telegraph poles and a number. I got that too, said Manuel. Cryptic. Maybe it's a telephone number, said Colin. Shall we call it? 
I've had enough of his stupid games, muttered Dorian, rolling his eyes. But he picked up the phone and dialed anyway. passed the phone around and listened. Gus had attached electromagnets to the telephone wires outside his window months ago. He'd been using them as a reverb unit, and sometimes the wind turned it into a huge aeolian harp. And then he had a conceptual art kind of idea for the presentation. Why not hook the telephone itself up to the coils? Then when anyone rang his number, they could listen to the vibrations, the wind in the wires, or they could just speak through it. His first permanent public artwork, he thought. A couple of visits to the electronics shop and some mild electric shocks later, and it was ready. Carl was panicking. His friends were being carted off by the police and it was all his fault. Shit, shit, shit. He needed to warn Gus to get rid of anything related to explosives or anything else dodgy. He phoned Gus's number. Hello? Hello, Gus? Gus? What the fuck? Did Gus have a new answering machine or something? Gus! Meanwhile, Dave was sitting at his kitchen table, staring at a piece of paper, frowning and playing with his dreadlocks. It was a laboratory analysis. Sample weight, 3.2 grams. 74% organic matter, unidentified origin. 14.9% inorganic matter, silica, ground glass. Active, 5.1% Delta-9 THC, 2.3% Diacetyl Morphine. The rest of the list was of tiny amounts of organic terpenoids and flavonoids, but he could see already it wasn't good news. There was new resin coming in via Belgium, and it was stronger and weirder than usual. He'd wondered what was in it, so he'd sent it off to the lab. Who the fuck thought it was a good idea to mix heroin and ground glass in with the cannabis? He was just wondering what the hell he was going to do with the lump he still had stashed away when the phone rang. It was Carl. Listen, Dave, you've got to help me. They've arrested Toby. I don't know what to do. Yeah, I heard, but... You think they might be after you too? Yeah, well, I could go to London. First place they'd look. They'd be around you mum and dad straight away. Shit. Well, maybe I've got an idea. Toby's not done nothing, basically, right? Um, 
it, but he did have a van full of explosives. Yeah, well, a couple of sacks of fertiliser for his cousin's farm, what I heard. They've got nothing on him, so they're going to let him out pretty soon. So? So when they realise there's nothing going on, Carol is out of the country anyway, mm-hmm. then they'll not be bothering you either. But best get out of the city for a bit. But where? I don't know anyone in the countryside. I know somewhere. Let me make a call. Pack a rucksack. Make it look as if you're going climbing or something. Climbing? I've never been climbing in my life. Take your camera then. You're doing a landscape project. Waterproof jacket, walking boots. Walking boots? Pair of docks will do. They should have some wellies there. Wellies? Okay. And I'll come and pick you up later. Make sure you take warm clothes and a sleeping bag. Okay? Dave's car wound around the crazy bends on the way over Snake Pass. It was cold and showery, but you could still see a long way. Jesus, Dave, I thought we were going to the Peak District. That's Manchester down there. Where are we off to? We're going further out, the Lake District. Some friends of mine have a place they go to when they need to get away from things for a bit. You've seen, um, Withnail and I. Yeah? Uncle Monty's cottage. Yeah? You're scaring me now, Dave. Well, it's there, more or less. Not not that farm, but almost as remote. No one will bother you. And if you meet the farmer or whoever, you just say you're an art student and they'll ignore you. Hang on, you are a bloody art student. Carl felt even worse now. Dave thought he wanted to escape from the police, but Carl was just worried that everything would come out and he'd be exposed as an informant. It'd be the end of everything. His friends, his career as an artist, his life. At the same time, he had to suppress an urge to tell Dave everything. A couple of hours after Manchester, The mountains loomed up in front of them. The motorway wound between amazing hills and the car worked its way upwards and into the clouds. Fuck, we can't see a thing, Dave. It's okay, it won't be long now. And soon, right on top of the hill, in the mist, they turned off the motorway. It didn't seem to be much of a village. They passed a garage and a pub. Some small terraced houses in the mist. It was getting dark now already. They turned down a track along some farm buildings, splashing through a load of puddles, and they passed a row of tumble-down cottages. Wow, says Carl. It looks like... What? Dunno. The North. It's like the fucking essence of the north, says Carl. Miners' cottages, out in the middle of bloody nowhere. Is there even a mine here? Quarries, says Dave, and sheep. That's about it. Suddenly, they bumped down a steep hill. 
Dave stopped the car at the bottom. In front of them was a narrow but fast-flowing river. Now what? It's a Ford. Can you drive through? (laughs) Not in this. Maybe with a Land Rover or something. But look, that's the house there. And there are some stepping stones. It's called Steps Hall. With precarious balancing, they carried their provisions over the stepping stones and they walked up the track to the house. You could see that some vehicles had come here, through the river, but not recently. Dave showed Carl which stone the key was hidden under. You could smell the cold and the damp as soon as the door swung open. It was dark inside, but Dave opened the curtains and managed to get the kettle going on the gas stove. Carl found some dry sticks and logs in the next room, a kind of scullery, and soon there was a fire starting to splutter in the grate, and they were drinking tea. Look, said Dave, I got some bread, some things in tins, milk, cheese, eggs, some apples, six-pack of lager, and this for emergencies. He put a bottle of whiskey on the table. This'll keep you going for a few days. Thanks, Dave. You've saved my life, really. I owe you one. Have you been out here before, then? Carl asked. Yeah. Why? Like you, I guess. I had to get out quickly once. Police? Worse. There was some gang trouble, and these pa... Well, guys from Rotherham. They thought I was in one of their rival gangs, dealing on their turf like. They shot a bullet through me door. Shit. So yeah, I got out till it cooled down. I managed to get some mates to let them know I'd keep well clear in the future. And the owners of the house? Here? You don't want to know. Honest. The less you know, the better, mate. Later that night, sitting in front of the fire, Carl told Dave about Chicago. He'd applied for an exchange to go to the Art Institute for his third year, and he'd just heard that he'd got in. There was even funding available, and he could start early, straight away if he wanted. Only, he felt bad about leaving his friends, the group, behind. But it would be a great opportunity. You should do it, definitely, said Dave. It's a a once-in-a-lifetime chance. I would. Honest. As the whiskey bottle slowly emptied, Carl started to reminisce about his childhood in Brixton and the music he heard in the record shops. After a while, Dave said, Carl, I never told you, did I, where I grew up? Birmingham, right? No, near Pretoria. What? South Africa? You're kidding? No, really. We left when I was about 14. Jesus, I didn't know that. Would you have talked to me if you'd known? No, probably not. Shit. Yeah, it was shit, but I didn't really know what was going on until I looked back. But you, actually, says Dave, I'm mixed too. My dad was Hindustani. My mum's white British. 
they decided to get out of there. I've been trying to hide my accent for years. Carl was surprised, shocked, but he felt even closer to Dave now. He could see that Dave was falling asleep from the whiskey, but he felt this was the moment. He took a deep breath. You know, that about Toby, the arrest. Thing is, I think, I think it's my fault. What do you mean? Well, I told a guy about, about the explosion we made. What kind of guy? I, yeah, I, I think he's a policeman or intelligence or something. Dave stared at Carl in silence for about a minute, nodding. Carl felt so hot, he was going to burn up. He just wanted to disappear. Uh-huh, said Dave, after a bit. I get it. So it's not really the police you're afraid of. You're just worried that your friends will think you've grassed them up. Sorry, Carl muttered. I, I really fucked up. He hoped that Dave couldn't see that he'd started to cry. Listen, Carl, said Dave. You know my line of business. Do you really think that I could do what I do without some contact with the pigs? Sometimes I have to tip them off too. For instance, I have a kind of a deal with them. I send them drug samples for testing. Then they know what's, what's out on the streets and they let me know the results. That way, I don't sell anyone anything bad. Sometimes I get a tip-off to keep out of the way. If I think some heavy gang is moving in, I might let someone know. Not everyone in the police is into that war on drugs thing, you know. They'd rather keep things under control, not have people dying on their patch. Now, this lot you've been talking to, it sounds like they're trying to infiltrate the art school, students' union or something, right? They're always paranoid about the lefties. But you lot, the group, you're just harmless. It's going to be fine, really. What do you mean, harmless? asked Carl. We're involved in radical politics. If they find... Carl, you've been reading about radical politics, getting stoned and dreaming. That's not what they're worried about. And Toby... They know he's in the Socialist Workers' Party. It was only a matter of time before they pulled him in for something or other. Trust me, no one will know it was you. It's not as if you set him up or anything, right? Carl woke up in the upstairs bedroom from the cold. A howling wind and a hangover. When he opened the curtains, he realised how remote the place was. You couldn't see any other buildings at all, and the hillside was totally bare, a bit like the Peak District, but with even fewer trees. The weather didn't look too bad. There was even some blue sky in the distance, but the wind sounded awful. Unheimlich, he thought one of the few useful words he remembered from German. Okay, it wasn't that useful, but it was apt. 
He went downstairs to wake Dave, but there was no one around, just a note. Telephone box up in village. Call and I'll come back. Or take bus to Penrith and catch the train. Let me know. Leave key under stone. D. Carl tried to remember what had happened the night before. He remembered talking about the police, but he couldn't remember how much he'd said. Shit. Stupid to talk when he was drunk. But then Dave had said he'd work with them too. Maybe it was okay. Dave could keep a secret, he hoped. Dave had pointed out the infamous Uncle Monty's cottage on the map. And, after breakfast, Carl thought he'd walk there. It didn't look far, and the weather wasn't bad, apart from that wind. But within 200 yards, he got his feet soaked by walking into a marsh. It wasn't even on the map. Or maybe he didn't know how to read the map. An hour or so later, almost jogging uphill along a farm track to keep warm, it started to snow. Shit, thought Carl. That wasn't the plan. It was great to be out in the fresh air, but now the clouds had crept up on him. After about ten minutes, he was in the thick of a blizzard. It was pretty disgusting snow, sticking to his face, sliding down into his boots. Up to the side on the hill, he saw a kind of a shack and decided to make for it. It was a steep climb, and he got to the shed breathless and opened the door. Fuck, it stunk! What do they do here? Sheep shearing, that's it, he thought. The ground was all slippy with wet sheep shit, but he managed to find a kind of bench to perch on. It wasn't even shut. The back of the shed was open to the hillside. But at least there was a roof. Carl stared out at the gathering whiteness. The snow turned to hail bouncing off the metal gates around his shelter. He took out a packet of cigarettes and lit one up. What was he going to do? Dave was probably right. Toby would be let off, and they had nothing on the rest of the group. And no one except Dave knew that Carl was an informant. He hoped that he could trust him. Even so, Carl was trying to imagine, going back to Sheffield, how Toby, Mary and Gus would react. He didn't know how he could carry on pretending. Maybe his whole life. His artwork. Maybe it was all just pretense. The wind was mumbling, nagging. He felt it was mocking him. Carl, whispered the wind, you're a fraud, a bad artist, a grass, a city boy out of your depth in the countryside. And his feet were bloody freezing. He started to shiver and he knew he had to go back down the hill 
back through the snow to the house, but now at least he knew what to do. He'd made up his mind. Tomorrow, he'd catch a train back to Sheffield, fax the Art Institute of Chicago, and he could be out of the UK within a couple of weeks. New leaf and all that. Thank you.